welcome to Vision Scope, a program intended to educate and inform. My name is Wilbert Williams. Welcome to another episode of Vision Scope. Today I have a very pleasant surprise for you. I have a guest who originates in Trinidad, but is now in the United States and has accomplished a great deal for himself and is carrying the flag of Trinidad and Tobago very high. His name is Archie Leacock, AKA Sharon. Archie, welcome to the program. What an absolute pleasure, Wilbur. Nice to be here finally. Yes, yes. We have gone through many hoops, but isn't life like that? You have to go through several hoops to get what you want. Clearly. Yes. Tell me a little bit about Archie Leacock. Who is Archie Leacock? My name, yes, is Archie Leacock. Folks in the Caribbean know me as Sharon, but once I came to the United States in 1972, it, it was an issue, so I used, started using my middle name, which is Archibald, but I shortened it to Archie so it would be more, you know, um, more interesting for everyone to use and to get used to. But I was born in Trinidad in 1954 and went to school there and then had vision problems. So my mother took me to the hospital in Port of Spain and after several years of working with glasses and surgery and all that stuff, nothing quite worked out. So when my mother got a visa to come to the United States in 1968, one of her first opportunities to bring someone, she thought she would bring me to the States to see if there's anything that can be done. However, before I came to the States, I went to, I went to Santa Cruz School for the Blind in Trinidad. I think I went there, I was nine until I went blind at 14, and then in 1998, that, that spring, January actually, the middle of winter, uh, in 1972, and then from then on, it's a whole new story. Yes. What was it like going to school in Santa Cruz, in Trinidad? Can you recall much about that? I really enjoyed going to school. I thought it was a very, very special event, even when I was in Trinidad, because my brothers and sisters, they went to school in Belmont, um, and I certainly heard about their trials and what they didn't have, and getting up every morning and having to take the taxi to school. But in Santa Cruz, it was a real privilege. We had house mothers there. We had folks who cared for us, barbershop, to give us haircuts, we got three meals, and they were lavish, lovely meals. It felt like I really was in something very special versus being at home, which was much more with up and down, had many more challenges. What was your accomplishment like in, in Santa Cruz? This is interesting part of who I am or who Trinidad is. Back then, the the student, the blind students who were selected to be integrated into the regular schools, and they're generally, you know, the upper level schools, the high schools, uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 
grades, they were selected to, from Santa Cruz as being the best students. And of course, back then, I was not one of the best students, so I never got selected. But certainly my friends, they went to, you know, several of the, the better schools in Trinidad and came home every day, and we all talked, and, and I didn't think I was any much different from they were, but at the time, I didn't quite make the cut, which is rather interesting in terms of educational and social development, because today, as you know, I have a PhD, and couple of master's degrees and, you know, and I still know many of those young, many of those individuals who in Trinidad were given the privilege to go to private schools and not in any comparative way, but it's interesting to see where they are today and where I am. What about uh, participation in sport? At that time, did you do any sporting activity while at school in Trinidad? Absolutely. I had good vision, I can walk around without a cane from about nine years to until I went blind at 13, the end of 13. And I played all the sports and I was good at it. You know, I played cricket, loved playing cricket, swam, ran, you know, do the relay. It was really good. I was quite active, quite active. Okay. Let's fast forward now to your going to the United States. What was the transition like? For me, it was very dramatic and draconian. Um, coming from a place where people loved you, they cared for you, even though you might not have gotten all the things they wanted to give you because of the resources in the Caribbean versus the resources in the United States. But it was still a place of comfort. I knew my mother, my uncle, my aunt who lived with us in Belmont, they loved us tremendously. And I knew that no one had to point anything out. I felt it, they took care of me in a loving way. I was the top of their list. When I went to school for the blind uh, at nine years old, everyone in the house was crying. And I was nine years and standing around seeing all my relatives, brothers and sisters crying because I was leaving to go to a residential school Nothing could be more powerful than yes. seeing all of your relatives. And it was whether or not it was genuine or not, they were all really crying. And that yes. was just one of many episodes that really concretized how much my relatives and brothers, sisters, my aunt, my uncle who lived with us, how much they thought about. When I came to the United States, it, it was a dramatic shock. Everything was super different, everything. The weather in Trinidad was in the 90s and 80s. And when I came here in January, what, January 16th, 1972, it was a hot of winter. It must have been 30 degrees. So I got off the plane and automatically like, where, where am I? Why am I so cold? <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. So it was a draconian change and everything automatic, automatically was different. The distance, I had to get onto another plane to come to Philadelphia. Then we had to take a taxi for a good half or 45 minutes in Trinidad. Only if there's traffic, it's, it's slow and long, but otherwise you can get around pretty quickly. So it, it was everything from day one was very different. The people spoke differently. Uh, everything was different. I'm going to ask you a pretty difficult question, but this is something that 
we have to come to terms with. Have you ever sat down and did a comparison between the facilities, the training facilities in Santa Cruz and the facilities at the school that you went to in the United States? What were the major differences in your opinion? Oh gosh, it, it was resources. It was resources. And I can tell at Santa Cruz, by, if I had stayed there any longer, there would have been minimal for me to do. Yes. Because at a certain point, it was just basic reading, writing, doing basic things. Although it was fun and I had my friends, we loved each other and hung out together. Um, but by the time I was 14, I was recognizing I was coming to the end. And the only thing that was facing me back then was when you leave Santa Cruz, you go to the blind workshop. Yes. And the blind workshop on Duke Street, you only made baskets. So my future was to be a basket maker. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it was. I mean, everybody left, went to Santa Cruz, or if they were from Antigua or... Dominica, they would go back to their workshop and work. Life was very limited. Yes. When I came to the United States, it was the total opposite. Everything was available. The system was fighting, you know, uh, the blind folks here were fighting to make life better. There were legislation, there were policies, there were groups you could join. I mean, it was just totally different. The education in the school, they prepared you to go to college. I'm like, college? I can even do that in Trinidad. They wouldn't even accept me. I was dumb. <laughs> you know, I couldn't yeah. even do this. Yeah. But here, they know, I was one of the brighter ones. They saw me as one of the brighter ones. I At Overbrook, I, Overbrook School for the Blind is the name of the school. I went there. I even ran for uh, council president uh, for the student body. I won. I mean, I, w I played organ. I played piano. I played flute. I ran track. I played, I was in the wrestling team. I mean, you name it, I did it. I was in a choir, everything. I just sucked everything up. And in so doing, was really one of the brighter and sharper ones at the school. Let's fast forward again now to the university system. What was it like going into university in the United States? Um, that was interesting for me because at Overbrook, they spent a lot of time talking about going out into the sighted world and you have to be prepared and you have to do this and you have to do that and that sighted people, blah, blah, blah. It was all about the sighted world. So therefore I was going out with uh, thinking that uh, here is a beast that I had to conquer. Sighted people, they'll never understand, they will never know how to help me cross the street. If they read to me, I have to tell them. It, it was really, uh, the transition was challenging for me. Not difficult, but challenging in the sense that everything I had to think through, what was the right steps for me, and I didn't want to offend sighted people, but it was actually, it was quite interesting. So now you're, having gotten into the university and um, what is it like trying to socialize then um, there? So socializing was a problem. I mean, college students, at least in America, you know, have parties on weekends. They 
belong to uh, you know different associations and clubs. I actually never joined any of those because I never felt that I was welcomed. Um, but it was simply because I was blind. But folks who got to know me on the floor, I lived in a dormitory because I lived in a dormitory in Santa in a overbuilt school for the blind. Um, so when I came to Temple, which was my undergraduate education, I also opted to live in a dormitory, although my mother only lived half far away. I could have traveled back and forth every day, but I decided to live on campus. Um, so lots of folks knew me, and of course I was one of the few blind folks in the building of, what, 13 floors? So it was hard to be missed. So I made a lot of good friends, uh, but never quite joined the, the broader university um, groups and organizations. What did you major in as an undergrad? Um, music. I, I, I got an undergraduate degree in piano performance and music history. Um, I spent a lot of time, of course, teaching. So picked up several music pedagogy classes around teaching, but my major was piano performance and music history. Okay. And when, when did that all start, your music? Involvement. When did it start? Was it back in my Trinidad? Started, hmm. My music actually started in Trinidad. I mean, who could live in the Caribbean and live <laughs> in Trinidad and not be a musician? Everybody <laughs> is a musician. You're yeah. singing calypso, you're yeah. dancing calypso, you're singing soca. Indian music is something that you're rejoicing in. They play the Indian music, you start mimicking. So any kind of music, dance, I remember dancing in Trinidad at the School for the Blind. We would go to the you know, Queen's Hall and we would all be dancing and on stage. I mean, it was just an enormous, wonderful life. I have to tell you that I lived as a child, although I was not selected to be one of the brighter ones in the school, but I was involved in everything and it was such a joy. Yes. So then you graduated and um, went into the world of work, I would imagine. What, what did well, you do then? One of the positives is while I was a junior, I started working. Um, I worked at several places uh, while I was in college. One of them was uh, it's called Carousel House here in Philadelphia where blind adults would come for day services and I was the music teacher. We would play different music and everybody kind of clapping and singing, you know, um, you are my sunshine, you are my sunshine, those kinds of general happy songs. Mm -hmm. And it was lots of fun. I did that for a whole year. And then I started teaching piano individually, which I started learning when I was in Santa Cruz. And really what drove my music background is, again, what I learned in Santa Cruz. Um, and from teaching, you know, I loved it, and I continued uh, working in Central Music School, one of the major music schools, community music schools in Philadelphia and in the United States. Oh, so you, you gained a lot of experience doing this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, oh, I, at the height of the music, I was playing in nightclubs. Yeah. I was going down to New Jersey where the, the shows are in Atlantic City, Stony Harbor. I would be playing all over, playing in churches. I mean, for about three years, 
that looked like that was going to be the life I I lived. Yeah. What motivated you to decide to do the masters? Um, well, before we get to the masters, I was in beginning to be in some quandary about what to do next because I saw all my friends who were at Temple and elsewhere, of course, by then, and so that it, making it in the world of music and and, and art entertainment was very difficult. Not only would you have to be excellent, but you would need to have a lot of connections. And at that time, going to Temple University, you could well imagine there were a lot of talented people. I would sit there and be mesmerized by my friends who would be playing concertos and, you know, all kinds of sonatas. And it was amazing. Mm. I thought I did well, but in all candidity, I saw many of them doing a spectacular job more than me. And if they were having trouble landing, performing gigs, I thought in reality back then I was, what, about 21, 22? I thought I, it just wouldn't make sense and I needed to find another career, a pathway. So I spoke to one of my advisors and he fallen in love with ethnic music because ethnic music was very similar to Caribbean music. Um, and I fell in love with it. And out of there, she suggested that I take up a master's degree in what is called ethnomusicology, the study of ethnic music. And I went to Indiana University um, to do that, which is one of the better music schools in the United States, Indiana University. Mm. So you did both master's degrees at Indiana? Or only the no, first one. I did my master's in ethnomusicology at, at Indiana, Indiana University. Okay. Okay. And then before I did that, I didn't need to just trace back a minute. I actually got a year scholarship um, from Goethe Institute and spent a year in Germany studying. By the, back then, it was called West Germany, mm -hmm. uh, right outside of Stuttgart, uh, Blaubaden. Um, was the name of the town, a small town right outside of Stuttgart. And I was there for, oh goodness, almost six months studying um, language because, you know, in America you study music, you got to study the German, yes. the Bach, the Beethoven, yes. all of these four, you know, so I figured, well, if I'm going to be in it, let me go study. I applied for the scholarship. Folks thought I would never get it. But I miraculously got the scholarship and they provided extra money for me to take along someone to help me. Mm. And he was also German. His background was German. So it was good. We went to Germany and had a blast. Had a blast. Learned a lot. Traveled all over West Germany to Switzerland and to Sweden and to Denmark. And we just went everywhere when we were in Germany. Every weekend we were on the train going someplace. It was lots of fun. Okay, so did you do Braille music? Yes, I did Braille music. How did you find it? Because a lot of people, a lot of people say that it is hard to learn Braille music because you have to it, learn the different sides. You know, if you're doing the piano, for example, you have to do the left hand and then the right hand. How did you find that? I thought equally it was 
not so much difficult for me, but cumbersome. Yes. As you say, you have to learn measure one with the right hand, yes. measure one with the left hand, put yes. the music down, practice, play, then play both hands together, and then keep going. It's a very slow, methodical process. Yes. The playing with the fingers are the same mm -hmm. fingers you need to read the prayer. That's right. So it was difficult. But I got I got so good at it that I could memorize an entire 14-page sonata Oh. Over the weekend, so my my piano teacher would give me a Beethoven sonata mm. on a Friday morning. She said, "Learn the first page or two, and I'll go home. I'll go back to my dormitory, and I would study that thing like a dog." And by the time I w I saw my teacher on Monday, Tuesday, I had all the memorized, and she was like baffled, not even cited. Students could memorize that way, it, so it was it was phenomenal. Yes. I would just get it memorized, but it, it was time consuming. Yeah. Later, you you did the the doctorate. What was that like doing doing a doctorate? Well, be, before we got, I got to the PhD level. I came back to the states from Germany. I went to Indiana University. And I actually did a two-year program in one year. I know I'm starting to get beyond myself. I'm good. I'm recognizing I'm good. And Santa Cruz missed a great opportunity. Yes. So I literally studied and passed the, the exam for my master's degree within one year. Mm. I got that degree in ethnomusicology. And then I figured, well, I'm studying ethnic music. What do I do? I went back to Trinidad for two and a half years and was a music teacher at one of the junior sex schools in Trinidad, Belmont Junior Secondary School. I was a teacher. It was all new for the young people, all challenging, but once they understood how I was teaching and I was not playing around, they got serious and they just loved having applied teachers. It was a great opportunity for them. Left there, came back to the state and I taught back at Settlement Music School again as one of the lead teachers, music teachers, which was a great honor to be selected as one of the best teachers in, in the school. And out of that, they, they asked me to take on being a director to start a unit to attract disabled musicians because they thought there was no one disabled at the school. So I became the director of music for the handicapped for, what, five years? I did an awesome lot of work fundraising writing grants hiring people it was it was the best years of my life um and of course i lived with a woman back then so i was having even more fun at night <laughs> so so every everything was ruling well for me back then and then i after five years i said to myself well i don't want to teach forever i don't want to manage this forever forever this is a larger world so i decided to go back school to learn management because management was a big thing I thought at Settlement Music School. It was about music, but it was really managing dollars, managing staff, hiring people. It was all about management. So I figured I would go back to school. I would pick up a, a master's degree in public administration at Temple University, but I also got a job at Temple as a counselor. So that allowed me to go to Temple relatively free. I got my master's degree in public administration um, and then suddenly went on 
I taught at two universities right after that. And it was just, America has been a whirlwind of great opportunities for me. And that's why I'm here today giving back to this country. Although our current president who is leaving in 10 days probably does not think immigrants can contribute to the country. But I've been, an, I think I've been an enormous asset to to the United States and to the African-American population in particular. So now that you have your doctorate, uh, what what do you plan to do in the future? What is the future like for Archie? Well, that's a good question. When I was teaching at Temple, working on my doctorate, uh, I was still taking classes. I was teaching concurrently as part of uh, the as part of the assignment for doctor of students. We had to teach classes. Um, I was very concerned after a while as to the students in my room. Um, not that in any way in American language that I was a racist, but I thought the university was in the middle of an African-American neighborhood. Mm. Of course, these neighborhoods are huge, you know, probably the whole island in Trinidad. Um, and I thought no one in my class was African-American or Latino. And I thought that was such a tragedy. And here I am, black, even though I'm from the Caribbean, but I was black and I was teaching 80, 90 European-American kids in front of me every semester. In the beginning, it was it was a wonder. It's like, wow, these white kids are coming and they know I'm black. But after about a semester or two, that wore off. And I'm like, no, I got to help out. So I started in, on weekends with my own time working with minority kids, largely African-Americans and Latinos, helping them improve their reading skills, their math skills, and helping them apply to college and to get into Temple. And then I started feeling like I'm doing something positive. And out of that, I fell in love with the work so much and parents started talking to me about, my son want to do this, my daughter's in jail, could you help? Could you do this, could you do that? I started hearing a whole new world of what what came to me as Trinidad. You know, uh, although I love Trinidad and still do, I have friends back home, I call them, we email, talk. But the thing that still baffles me is the level of resources. Yes. Um, to be in America and not feel that you can ever go to college or that you are classified as poor and you live in an abandoned house and you have cockroaches in your house and you don't have food in your house and you don't have even clothes to go to school. This is real. This is not made up or poor choices. This is African-Americans and Latinos born into this situation. And, and I, I started thinking, gosh, this reminds me of home. We were just destitute poor, you know, destitute poor, kind of don't have breakfast in the morning and trying to figure out lunch. That's why I thought going to Santa Cruz for me was a real joy because I had three square meals and I can ask for more yes. and got more. When I was in Belmont, you miss, you miss your breakfast in the morning because your mother didn't have any money. What do you do at lunch? You were just glad to eat and sometimes you would just get a cup of tea and some crackers. We call it crisps. Seeing the same things happening in America. 
And I'm like, wow, this is interesting that I'm right back to where I left Trinidad. And now I have the skills, I have the education, I have the ability, I can write, I can think, I can read. I now need to contribute back to this country what they have given me. Because honestly, I don't think I would have ever gotten this far. We don't have the structure still in Trinidad for a blind person to get a PhD or even blind people to go to university. Now there are a few of my friends in Trinidad who know other blind folks go to university, but one or two. Here, I, I go to school, Indiana University. There were 40, 50 of us yes. going to school and we would all get together at the Center for the Blind or you know, Office for Visually and Impaired Services. So it was just such a major difference. Essentially, I left the university when I finished up my degree in 98 uh, and started building this agency because I thought this would be the, the structure from which I could provide services to minority kids uh, more effectively. And it's now called Institute for the Development of African-American Youth. We do serve all young people. We do have some European-American kids here now. Um, we have, uh, what, 20, 25% Latinos and a good 70% uh, African-Americans and a very small percentage of uh, Asians. In America, you can't, you know, you can't discriminate if you want public dollars. And I'm not interested in discriminating. I just want to serve anyone like me when I was small who had an idea, had a dream, just wanted the opportunity to dream and to be supported. That's all I'm trying to do with these young people, although they have multiple challenges. But at the end of the day, we want to get them to a point where they can live out their lives and help others. Because at the end of the day, that's what life is about, helping other people. Yes. So you, you sound like somebody who eventually would end up in politics. Is, politics? That, is, that, is that a reality or...? Well, that has been the recent reality um, in, 19, in 2014. Well, after a while, I started talking, you know, to different politicians here, elected politicians locally mm. in Philadelphia, in Harrisburg, which is the capital of the state of Pennsylvania. That's where I live, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is a city. Mm. Um, and I started talking and I started recognizing these guys don't know what they're talking about. They need somebody else to help them. No, I'm getting cocky. Santa Cruz, I was very meek and mild. No, I'm getting cocky. <laughs> I know what changed. I'm doing. They just need to elect me. Yes. So I started thinking how to do it. And I started looking into it while I was running, being the executive director of IDAY. We call it IDAY, the Institute. Mm. And I took my first run in 2014. I, of course, being new, I made lots of wonderful mistakes, learned, came back another two years to run again, and this time I missed the ballot by 10 votes. Oh, that ten was close. Votes. Yes. So I figured I might do it again. I have not made up my mind, yes. but I'm looking at all the pieces and figuring out. But I think ultimately I get elected yes. if that's what my next bridge is to cross. I, I'm interested in how, again, to make the world, even in America, where there are lots of funding, a lot of resources, how to make America accessible to the most disadvantaged.
encourage young people in our, in our world. And that's what we need. Yes. We need strong strength and support, resources for young people because they're the ones who want to grow up and do well. If we don't have them when they're young, and for me, young is under 25. We, we still five to 25 years old. Mm. So we need to strengthen them, help them, give them their jobs, have them with testing, have them take care of whatever mental issues they may have or learning disabilities they may have. And we need to get them to the point where they can dream, where they can do the world and make the world a bigger and a better place for all of us, regardless of race. Let's look at Archie, the person. We've been talking about Archie, the professional. But let's look at Archie, the person. Are you a family man? Well, I see my family as this whole institute. We have, what, 605 young people in the agency right now. And in many ways, I'm their fathers, I'm their mentor. You know, I'm someone they, they trust, they can talk to. But we have staff. Because of the COVID right now, we laid off half of our staff. Right now, we have, have what, 18 staff members on board with us, which is still a handful. Um, but personally, the person, personal life of mine has, has intertwined. Um, but essentially, I am a family person, yeah. but in a broader sense, I wouldn't call myself a family man in terms of just having a wife and four mm. and five kids. I do have one son, and I had I have that son with one of the uh, the women uh, who went to Santa Cruz with me. She was from Dominica, fell in love with her, and she was left to go back to Dominica after she left Santa Cruz, and we lost touch for a while. But when we got back together. It was hot and sweaty as it was back in Santa Cruz. <laughs> and we we have one son, and today he's 26 years old. And he just just announced to me that he's having his first child uh, a month or two pregnant, and I said, congratulations. Yes. yes. So, but I, I live with my nephew. My nephew lives in my basement, which is a furnished basement. It's not a trash basement. Mm -hmm. And I live upstairs, and... That's the real extent of me as a person. Um, I was more driven. I need relationships that could supplement what I was going after. So someone who understands my goal, my dream, and they can join, or they have as a female, they can join my dream. And I did find two other women that I lived with um, for three years each, but they, were, they had very different dreams of what I wanted. They wanted a big family and a white picket fence, the American dream, a big car. Mm. And I'm like, that's corny. I don't want no big car and a big house. That will naturally come. Yeah. So today I am alone uh, and happy. I'm okay. O I'm okay. Okay. What, what, what kind of foods do you love? Um, I am not picky about eating. I certainly don't cook. My mother did a great amount of the cooking. And of course, she was from Trinidad, so we had all kinds of Caribbean food, even throughout while we lived here in America. Um, so I love, I love, I love spicy food. You know, certainly peas and rice. I love it. All kinds. I love roti. Um, we and now there's so many Caribbean stores in Philadelphia. You often feel like you, 
you don't even have to go to Trinidad anymore. You, phone calls are cheap. WhatsApp is available. You can talk free. Mm-hmm. You have restaurants all over the place, Caribbean restaurants selling everything. I mean, you can email back and forth. My friends in Trinidad, we talk all the time, two, three times a month. So I almost feel like I'm in touch with what's going on in Trinidad. The newspapers online that I often feel that I don't have to physically be there to appreciate it and I can even stimulate them. One other thing I'll say to you, Wilbert, is um, in the early 90s, I was um, I was concerned about what was happening in Trinidad with the blind. Yes. And I went down there for about a year. Just about every month, I paid for the ticket myself. And I stayed with one of my friends every time I went. And for about a year, I trained the folk, the blind folks in Trinidad, the adults, how to organize, how to mobilize, how to go after the government, mm. you know, uh, for different policies and changes. And really made a lot of interesting and worthwhile changes. And one of my great folks I worked with, Kenneth Surratt, is now the chief in many ways of the um, work for the blind in Trinidad and he is on one of the Trinidad Council yes. uh, reviewing rights and you know opportunities and mm-hmm. what they should do for disabilities. So I feel the work I've done there during that year, and of course, I kept them out a lot when I'm here, writing things, making phone calls. So in total, all of what I was doing has been one giant effort. Yes. Uh, what's your favorite piece of music? If you were exiled and you could only take one piece of music with you, what would it be? Gosh, I have to tell you, I love Caribbean music. I love the rhythm mm. of the Caribbean. I mean, I love soca. I, I mean, being a trained musician and a research analyst in ethnomusicology, you, you really learn to appreciate music and yes. you dissect. Yeah. You, Look at the history. You look at the players. How did they get there? You know what I mean. Um, so, so I just love music. All kinds of music. I just don't care for one kind. I love jazz. I love Jamaican uh, reggae. You know, love the Caribbean music. I mean, you name it. Even the African music. We studied, and I just love all of it. And of course, classical music. And that was the basis of me getting my undergraduate degree. Uh, Archie, this was a very interesting and stimulating discussion. I'm glad we finally made it to have this interview, and I want to wish you all the best for the future. Well, but I I thank you for being so patient with me. I thought you would have given up because this is what four or five times. (laughs) But the reason I stuck in and have been willing to work with you is because it's the same mission that I have across the board. Yes, it can be done. If you push hard enough and you're, you're polite to ask enough help and you could you have the energy and the ambition, you can get where you want to get to. I am no, as, as I said earlier in this interview, I'm no genius and really no genius. It's just studying and staying up all night and going to bed at five and being exhausted the next day to make this happen. There's more determination than brilliance, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we can all do it. We can do it if we have the support and 
we have the energy and I want to encourage blind people, disabled people, even sighted people to believe you can live your dream. And it's for real. It's just not a metaphor. If you 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 had to leave a parting word with our listeners, a motivational word, what would it be? Find someone to talk to and to work with. You really do. I, I don't think any of us can do it alone, and I know I could not have done it alone. I'm a great people. My mother, we didn't even talk about my mother, but I could not have done this without my mother. She's now dead. Mm. And when she died, I ended up in the hospital. And they said, don't you know, I'm tearing up. Every time I talk about my mother, and I'm going to have to write an article about her, I could not be here without her. Yes. Um, I'm crying already. So you're saying you need somebody to talk to, to share your dreams. You need and to help you up the ladder. To, to mentor someone who can, you can yeah. trust that you can work with. Yes. Yes. Archie, thank you so much. And we'll stay in touch, eh? Please, let's stay in touch, brother. Yes. And thanks, Wilbur. Thank you. My pleasure. If you have any questions or comments regarding this program, please address them to norwill2 at gmail.com. That is N-O-R-W-I-L-L number 2 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Have a happy and productive week. That's it for today. Join me next time when we will present another in the series, Vision Scope. Music was provided by Rennie Williams, Jr.